Hello, everyone. Welcome to Cyber Inspiration Podcast. My name is Evgeny. I've been around cybersecurity for the last 20 years, and I have a lot of experience working with a variety of cybersecurity vendors and vendor consulting as well. As part of my job, I do advisory and consulting. As part of my passion in technology and cyber, I've always been intrigued to learn how companies start. I started the podcast to understand the thinking process and the motivation of people to start their own company. This podcast is also affiliated with Security Architecture Podcast. I have a pleasure today to talk to Darren from Carbide and understand his story to starting the company. Darren, can you please introduce yourself and the company? Hello, everyone. My name is Darren Gal. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Carbide. We're a company that basically has a SaaS platform, as well as all kinds of enhanced support functionality and training to help small to medium-sized businesses build, maintain, manage, and report on their information security and data privacy posture. We started in 2017, late 2017. And uh, yeah, we are going strong now with 45, 46 employees in the company and working with about 210, 215 customers across Canada, the US and Europe. Thank you. It's always a pleasure to talk to a fellow Canadian as well. The Canadian industry and cybersecurity, I think is booming. There's a lot of cool vendors. So Darren, around what, three years ago, two years, four years ago, you had an idea to start the company and you're not really coming from a security background. So I'm wondering how you got the idea what happened in your life that make you start the company? Yeah, so I guess the I didn't really think a ton about data security um, in my, when I was in the music industry. So yeah, I come from a, a I think an odd path to get to cybersecurity. I was a performer, played drums, guitar, vocals in bands for close to ten years of my life. After I got a little tired of being on the road all the time which is fun, but like a lot of fun things, they're more fun in your early twenties. I started doing production studio stuff, started a record label, which was really my first real business endeavor with employees and whatnot. Um, uh, That was all happening shortly thereafter, 2007 happened and big market crash, but also the ass essentially fell out of the record industry. And that was a really tough time for us. I saw the writing on the wall, didn't see a way forward and started a SaaS company in 2008 called Mercado. And we built a platform initially to help artists and artist managers manage their tours and manage their operations. Um, That was a really hard sell. As we all know, musicians don't have a lot of money. First first hard lesson in entrepreneurship, make sure your customer has money. That's a real simple one, but very critical. We, We were, however, you know, we were heading towards failure But what we did is we rallied, we identified an opportunity in music festivals to use a lot of the same technology and infrastructure we had built with some modification. They had more, they had more budget certainly than the artists did. We were able to convince our investors to, you know, keep faith in us and support us through transition. We launched a festival product in Canada initially, started working with a lot of the small festivals, worked our way up to the Junos and so on. And then we broke into the US, landed Coachella, Burning Man, Bonnaroo. And that's where security became an issue. So really right as we were starting to land these big US festivals that were corp- what I would say corporately owned festivals by organizations like AEG and Live Nation. At the same time, our feature set was expanding in a way where we were collecting a lot more confidential data. So for example, we would have 
uh, the lineups for some of these festivals very early, even in the negotiation and planning stage when they may have only had one, two, maybe three individuals within their organization privy to that information. So a lot of scrutiny came upon us by those festivals. I still remember Live Nation going through and doing a fairly intense security audit on us. And that was a real reality check. And that's when you know I realized that we as a company um, didn't have the security posture that we should have for what we're doing at the caliber we're doing. And, you know, in fact, we unfortunately in 2014, and this was the real um, moment that security became very clear to me. We lost an opportunity to do a major festival deal in Europe, which would have basically increased our revenue by about 15% in one deal. We lost it because we just didn't have the security posture that was expected. And with you know things like GDPR coming down the pipeline, there was a lot of concern there. And so that motivated me as the CEO of what was at the time, you know, really moving into being a profitable company. This was the biggest barrier. This is what I focused on. And so worked with consultants, got really interested in the space and started reading a lot, learning a lot, you know, downloading templates, working with consultants to craft policies, craft controls really modify those to be a lot of the stuff that was available 2014, 2015, like you could go to the sans.org website and download like, you know, a, a template of policies, but the stuff was very enterprise corporate and, you know, trying to fit this into a music, like cool hip company that was like 20 people. So, you know, got into it really heavily. And then that kind of sort of continued to taking on education in security. I ended up doing my CI a couple of years later. And then as a company at Mercado, we actually turned that into a sales competitive value proposition. So, you know, some of our newer competitors coming into the space were younger, didn't have these experiences of understanding what was required from a security privacy perspective. And we sold it. Our sales guy would like, here's our security report. And it'd be like my pitch or CEO, CISP. We really blemished that and used it as a strategic advantage. When I did my CISP, and this is where the idea came, when I was doing all this, building the policies, I remember at one point I was like, there's got to be some SaaS software to help where I can just punch in some data and it'll generate some recommendation and some guidance, right? And of course, at that point, there wasn't. And as I was learning it more, going through the experience of implementing first, um, you know, controls to to meet SOC SOC 2 audit and then eventually GDPR, just more and more started thinking like, wow, this is going to be something that all businesses are going to have to deal with. And all the while I had my brother who has a very senior position in the Royal Canadian Mount of Police in at the time, cybersecurity was really telling me just, you know, high level stuff about like how the criminal activity is just blowing up and, you know, how hard it is to catch a lot of this criminal activity compared to traditional black market activity. Right. And it just became really evident that this, that the world we're in now was very clear somewhere, a place where we were heading um, when I looked at this, say, through the lens of 2016, 2017. And so I started to work on this as an idea with my co-founder, Laird Wilton. Um, And at the same time, I was in the process of selling my company, but that deal fell through. Um, And so now I'm in this really weird predicament where I still own company A and I'm trying to start company B, which another lesson uh, on the journey of entrepreneurship. If you want to piss your investors off, start another company while you're still running the first company. But that's another story. But, you know, eventually 2018, I sold my company, dove in and started working on this project full time. And that's really how I got there, you know, from playing in a band to uh, being the CEO of a cybersecurity company. It's quite a cool story. People want to start a new company and you had a hunch that it's going to be something that people are going to need. 
but what is the market research you did? How do you do validation that people are actually going to buy what you're going to create? So the first thing we did, and this is pretty much all we did in, I would say, late 2017, early 2018. So had still not really taken on any capital, like just a small amount, friends and family, like people of high net worth that could give us a little bit of money, some Canadian grants and a small group of people just working on testing the concept. And so what we did, we had a designer, we had a developer and my co-founder Laird working on it full-time. I'm still CEO trying to sell my other company. But what we did is we did a little bit of an experiment. We called it a Wizard of Oz experiment. And essentially what we did is we built a website that made it look like we had a tool that built security policies that were tailored to your business, that were legible for non-technical, non-security people that were suitable for smaller businesses. And we just put that out there on social channels within networks that we had to see if we get any bites. So, um, and then we got some bites, we charged them. So like in 2017, late 2017, we actually had revenue. We didn't have a product at all. We had a website and we had templates. And essentially what they were templates that, that I derived from some of my previous work in doing my CISD and having navigated that, that journey of you know, trying to create language for my last company's information security policies that would really resonate and work versus like, you know, here's a bunch of gibberish in 10 point font that you don't understand, read it, sign a box and you know, security, let's security theater it, right? Like we have policies, we don't really follow them or understand them for that matter, nor are we actually confident whether or not they fit our business needs. But, you know, instead of doing that, we failed. okay, we'll build a tool, start there. So when we got our first few deals, what we generally basically did, we actually used a form tool. I forget which tool it was, but we had a questionnaire. This was the theory. And the questionnaire was like, you know, how big are you? What do you do? How long have you been in business? Where are your customers? What, you know, from the below list, select all the types of data you store from the below. Just like walk you through, it was like 25, 35 questions or something like that. And then based on that, I would go with my template and in Google Docs and just build out you know, spend like the day building out a set of security policies that were heavily dependent on the template, but were essentially customized, right? Find all, select name, change to this, and then just go through and look at it and review it. And the way we had the Wizard of Oz, it would just say like, hey, you know, we're in, we were in beta, you know, there's four, 48 hour wait as a security expert reviews the results of the beta system. There was no system. It was just literally like the template and the questions. And, and so we did that a few times what that turned into we didn't want to take on too many customers because as you can tell like we weren't charging a lot for it and it was fairly labor intensive to do it like a reasonably good job at it but what we found is that when these these handful of beta customers would come back and want to do calls and want to learn more and you know that that was really sort of the grounds that showed okay well there's companies are seeing this trend is happening they they have a need it's generally you know from for smaller businesses, it's generally driven by the customer demand. So I think startups, especially like their biggest concern is running out of money before they get to, you know, their next round or cash flow positive or whatnot. So like anything that affects your ability to sell obviously wakes up the board and wakes up the CEO and everything else kind of gets kicked down the can kind of gets kicked down the hallway. So yeah, so we just did that. And and what we saw over, over I don't know, maybe eight or nine months of doing that. And then, you know, I think after the first 
three or four months, we started building a we started building a policy editor. So eventually, we had a tool that could allow us to do that at scale. And so we did. We opened it up and we did a test. We I think we only charged five hundred dollars and we sold a bunch of them. And that was really the validator. That was the point where like, okay, well, we just had like a hundred people pay $500 just to generate policies, right? It wasn't a repeat SaaS business at this point. This was just literally like, hey, we've taken the questions. We've looked at what I've done in the Wizard of Oz experiment, how many changes, and we built a tool that would change, like decide which clauses need to be in there, which version of the clauses need to be in there based on answers of the questions. And that's how we validated it. And then from there, it was just really obvious that, people then need it more, like people need it more. They needed to be able to answer questions. They needed to be able to learn more about the lingo. They needed to be prepared to understand in order to implement stuff. That's really where it started. And um, we got into Techstars in 2018. And that's when we really started, you know, thinking about the business as a real, you know, repeat SaaS sort of recurring revenue business. So I'm wondering, you have kind of half product, you're going somewhere, you're going to customers and do you tell them about what you build? You're gonna, do you sell the future chicken or the egg or you tell them what you have right now and you sell them what you have right now? Yeah, I think at different stages, we've done a little bit of both in a combination. So um, I, I think that there were definitely some moments and this is a challenge. This happens as soon as you start hiring like people, you put a salesperson in, right? You have a sales rep in there. Sales reps are motivated, especially if you're motivating them by quotas or commission or structures like that. I think you end up in a situation where you can end up overselling. It's really common in SaaS. I think we've all bought a SaaS product in our lives where we're like, you know, this isn't necessarily all it sounds like it is when you look at the marketing material. I think for us, what we tried to do, and in most cases we're successful, but to be totally honest and transparent, not 100% of the time, is we, we all, there was always some component of that Wizard of Oz operation in the business. In other words, we had tools that would do things, and, but their level of accuracy because of the importance of the topic maybe wasn't there. And so we threw bodies at going through and verifying and really making sure um, that the recommendations and the advice. So even at the loss from like, if you looked at it from a cost of delivery or like, you know, what's your margin? Like at those early stages in the business, I would say we were losing money on deals because we were putting a lot of effort in. I personally spent a lot of time with customers um, help, helping them understand and, and teaching them. And, you know, it's interesting, like we still do that to some extent. And what we learned in doing that, which was fascinating, is it really helped us understand the customer and it really helped us understand where they need help more. Because there's two things that I have that are blinders that my average customer don't have. So sure, I'm a CEO of a SaaS company. So I'm, we're from the same camp. But the two things that I have that most founders of tech companies don't have is I'm experienced in cybersecurity. I've been through this. I've studied it and I'm passionate about it. I care about it. And this is not something that like most founders are passionate about whatever it is they're doing. They're probably not passionate about cybersecurity. They probably haven't read much about it or taken courses or haven't had experiences in it. So, you know, I think like 
spending that time with the customers, we still do have tiers of our, in our company that involve a lot more touch. It's like a very enhanced support. We even have workshops that we take companies through in, in, in their more premium, higher tiers. And that continues to be a really good source of information about understanding the transitions in what our customers are facing. And there's a drastic transition there. Like what was being asked of a SaaS by an enterprise company four or five years ago is substantially different than the requests that are being put upon them now. As a CEO of the company, there's a lot of tasks you need yeah. to do, the company need to do. What is your magic to stay on top of the task and to make sure you're doing the more important tasks? So magic is a... I wish I had magic. <laughs> you all had magic. How do you use it? The, that's a good point. The, there's a couple of things. I mean, the first one is you really do have to establish priorities. And you have, like, this is kind of how, what I do. Like, I set objectives, like, like top three or four key objectives, the things that are the absolute most important that I have to be on top of for each month. And then as in the sea of demand that's put upon the CEO, you're getting requests from your investors, from your board, um, your customers, your employees, you're getting, you know, out uh, emails and calls and like, just, you know, there's so much happening all the time and there's always more you can do. What I do is I look, I always look at the tasks against those objectives. And if, and the key there is really, you have to say no, like a no has to be a very common thing and delegation. So like in the transition, like obviously when you're five people and you're sort of idea stage versus like 15 people versus like where, you know, where we are now, where we essentially have a VP for every department, the, the whole thing changes, but I think that's remains consistent. The other thing that I've done a, l- a little over a year ago is I've hired a full-time dedicated executive assistant and that's really helpful. So And that's a, we also hired a coaching organization that coached both myself and my assistant on how to build an efficient system and model. So how do I leverage that resource? How's that resource tooled? And, you know, how, what are our operating principles and checks and balances to make sure we're getting the most of that relationship? And so what that does for me is it means like people go to that person, not me when they need time with me. And there's criteria that she can use to vet, validate. And we have, you know, every second day a standing meeting where if there's any uncertainties, we can clarify that. She's receiving my, all my inbox, my my email goes to her. So all the scheduling, all the calendar, all of the, all of that stuff, all my travel arrangements. I do notes at the end of meetings or at the end of the day on dictation, which automatically goes to her, which she then goes, populate stuff in the CRM. So just allowing me to have almost building, like the way I thought about it when I started working on this about a year and a half ago is building a support system, like a CE, the office of the CEO, if you will. And, you know, for me, that's included my COO and co-founder. It's included her, my executive assistant, and she now does, she's not, she now is like, we've automated a lot of the stuff and created a great deal of efficiency there where she actually now does special projects 
um, for me. So, hey, I'm trying to research a certain thing or we're going to go after a certain market. She'll go do a lot of digging, really help me, you know, navigate bigger projects that I may have done myself when we were 10 or 15 people. You know, at one point there was a personal trainer helping me just be better at my looking after nice. Darren, helping me build practices there. I had a therapist at one point helping me build better practices in, you know, time management and just mindfulness, things like that. Cause you know, there's definitely been some points of burnout and overwhelm on the journey, which I think is, yeah. I, we'll I get to the dark side. Yeah. All right. The dark side. Yeah. We'll leave the dark side. The dark side. I'm wondering when, when you started the company or maybe later on, did you guys created values for the company that, you know, this is what's important for my company. This is the type of people I want to hire. They're going to support the values in the company as well. A hundred percent. We've built, we've always had values and a mission that we make very clear to our team all the time. We, it, we reference it through hiring and it's built, it's built what I believe is a really great culture, you know, navigating the challenges of, well, when we were 10 or 11 people, we were all in one office in a room together. And so cultures value that stuff can more organically naturally happen. I think when you're all sitting like normal humans in a room together, being humans, um, when you're all scattered about as we are now, we have people in Montreal, Toronto, Calgary, Edmonton, places, parts of the U S et cetera. Um, it has to be like, it's a little more challenging. Right. And, you know, we still thinking about, we still think about that now. We actually just literally did a, a survey to our employees just to get sense of, you know, how that's working out. But yeah, that's critical for us. And that was critical from day one. And I think a lot of it really just kind of really taking the values that I had in my entrepreneurial journey, which lived in my last company and build them out. And it's, you know, it's about authenticity, honest and openness. It's, it's about being good to one another, being transparent, being open being thoughtful and mindful. I mean, we don't push our employees at all costs. Like we don't expect that the company is more important than your family and your health. And, and we're very clear about that. I think what it translates into is my last company had amazing retention, employee retention. We also have amazing employee retention in our business so far. This is good to hear. If you can go back and give Darren an advice four years ago, five years ago, what will be the advice you will give to yourself to do different? The biggest piece of advice that I would give myself would have been to hire senior, expensive, extremely experienced and competent people earlier. So we have those people now, but we didn't have those people. I mean, at the point in like, say, mid 2018, where we were like, okay, this is real. We're going for this. Let's go. That would have been the time to bring that talent in. And I think there was always, and this has always been a part of my entrepreneurial journey. I've always had a mission to support my region here in Cape Breton Island, Nova Scotia. So I always really wanted to hire local people and give people a chance and the challenge with that, though, is if the opportunity to move is fast and the window is opening quickly, time to learn is tough, right? And I'd even say there's things that I took on as the founder, as the CEO, that I wish I had a brought in people 
like, sure, I figured it out now, but damn, we would have, you know, if there's opportunities we would have been able to seize in the moment that we weren't able to seize in the moment that would have been good for the business's growth. Had I brought in that degree of expertise earlier, there's mistakes we would have made on the micro level in, in product decisions, in sales execution, all of these things that had we brought, had we gone out more aggressively and raised more aggressively and brought in that talent a little quicker, we would have been able to get to the velocity we're operating at now sooner. Great. Thank you. Very good advice. I think it's very important advice for people as well. You're going to switch gears. You're going to talk All about right. dark side. Everybody is still listening. Please continue listening and subscribe and comment on the podcast. So Darren, the dark side talks about what didn't go well. The bad meeting with the customers, VCs, people, maybe something else, like the name of the company. Like, Tell us about some interesting stories that was a lesson learned or maybe you wish it never happened to you. Yeah, I'd say there's two really big ones that I think affected our, like really took a lot of resources and wasted a lot of time in the early stage of the business. The first one was, in, again, back to that objective of supporting my local area and thinking about talent from a regional perspective, we really didn't hire the right talent to lead product early. We hired talent that understood the domain and I think drastically underestimated the talent required to build a product and be innovative and take an expertise in a field and actually build a solution and, and apply that degree of creativity and leadership. And we failed at that twice in a row by trying to keep that role in our region. And it was fairly late in the game before we actually went out and found a, an executive, a leader that un, really has the hybrid of both the domain expertise required to service the area, but also the ability to lead a team, to be creative and to design a solution, multiple solutions creatively and effectively to a problem. So like our product growth in the last year has been amazing, but you know, we effectively weren't moving at the deliberates and the, the, the velocity that we could have. And then that, that cost us opportunities. That's one. The other one is the name. Um, we picked the name Securacy very quickly. We loved the name and we couldn't, you know, we couldn't find any, we couldn't find any URLs or anything that looked to be a challenge for the name. And but what we didn't do is we started, when we started, we, we were a little delayed in going for our trademark application for the US. We paid somebody to do a fairly, you know, to do a search. We, in retrospect, it was a Canadian firm. We should have probably hired a more competent firm, but they didn't find another company that shared a name that was close enough to us that once we had our sort of our probationary approval in the U.S. trade office, there's like a 30-day period or something where people can contest. And lo and behold, one did. And their, their, the fight would have been too long and lengthy and challenging without any great degree of certainty that we'd be successful. 
and we made you know we made the executive decision to change the name now the mistake wasn't the executive decision to change the name the mistake was we cut corners and spent less money than we should have early on and we did get some legal advice that costed us a relationship with that particular legal firm that that was they didn't think we should spend the amount of money that it would do it to do it at a higher degree but in retrospect like it, the time and energy that we lost in 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 20 you know late 20 mid to late 2021 right through to that relaunch in 2022 was energy that we weren't spending on lead generation and other things in the business right so and there was a lot of technical changes right changing domains and so i mean we weren't that big of a company at the time so you know better to do it then than now and that is true it is better that we did it then but that that small decision many years ago when we were sort of operating on little to no revenue and friends and family financial backing big regret like that that extra 5 or 10 grand that we could have spent then would have been very valuable to the business and would have led us down to you know being more thoughtful with that and and not having to do that rebrand now the re- post rebrand hey things are great now I love the rebrand. It was done more thoughtfully. Um, I think it looks more professional. I think, you know, messaging and positioning and all that is more professional. But um, yeah, it was a really big distraction for us. And it definitely did cause us, you know, it caused some challenge for us. Makes sense. Great. Very cool story. Very interesting. Definitely different perspective from many people I interviewed before. So Darren, thank you for coming. Any maybe questions or topics you want to bring? Well, I guess one topic that, you know, that I think about, and maybe it's a question because it is a question. I mean, I have some theories, but I'd love to hear your thoughts or even just, you know, what your listeners think. But despite everything in the space, I still see a lot of companies playing security theater. In other words, despite all of the breaches and just how lucrative the black market and cybercrime has become and, how, you know, anybody who thinks they have nothing to hide, only oh, you got something. You just don't know whatever creative ploy somebody's going to use to, to take advantage of it. But, you know, how, how do you think, like, what do you think it's going to take for companies to take things seriously and actually think about security? Not from a sales only perspective, but from like to the point where boards are actually making mandating it and business owners are really taking it seriously versus the security theater of having pretty graphs and pieces of paper and stuff that, you know, help you close deals. Like when is it going to be not just a sales tool and actually be a pillar in the business? And what is it going to take to do that? It's a very good question. I'll ask the audience as well. You know, when we post this personally, I don't have a crystal ball, but sometimes I have my more my own visions. We definitely need more cyber people on the board. And slowly, very slowly, we're coming to the era when security is not a duct taping and something that we need to develop from the beginning. You need to understand that you start the product and you're doing security right away. And I hear a lot on the pitches from people doing pitch to VCs. VCs ask, okay, you have this amazing product in finance. What is your plan for cybersecurity? So there's already 
understanding and I'm talking to my VCs friends and they have their own checklist that they ask people about this already. So it's slowly going there. And unfortunately, the more breaches, the more problems, the more finance comings as well. We saw with Uber, there's a lot of fuss about when Uber got hacked. Then two days after, they posted a bunch of phones for their security. Maybe just happened at the same time. I think it's a lot of lessons learned for the board, for the business owners, for the CEOs of the companies, that the same is compliance, the same is health, the same is chemicals that you need to watch. You also need to watch for cybersecurity and have the hygiene. Yeah, I think that I like that. I, I actually been, I sit on the board of another company, about 500 employees, privately held company. And uh, you know, that that was, you know, certainly one of the value propositions of why they brought me on is, you know, somebody that has a certification in cybersecurity and data privacy and has experience operates in the space. And that's a role, like I, I've been able to influence the change of perception from security being an IT problem to security being an organizational problem. You know, and it's been fascinating to see like that leadership in a company transition. And I mean, that company had really strong IT infrastructure and security in that regards. But, you know, now that they've, you know, over doubling their growth since I've come on as a board member, their, their security posture has become more sophisticated and is, you know, very much more transitioning and successfully into a risk-based approach that, that has leadership buy-in and, uh, you know, I still see a lot of companies that don't like a lot of companies have not brought that security or privacy leadership into the business on that level. And they think of when they hire a security person, this happens, they're wanting a, a security manager or a director, and that person doesn't report to the CEO. And they're kind of, it's like it's being treated in a lot of businesses like this administrative role. Or it's just getting dumped on the IT department, like you guys handle it. So no, it's, there's definitely companies that are making that transition. I hope your prediction is correct. I think, and I agree 100%, I think more companies need that expertise at the board level to educate the board members. Because right now, like what you could bring anything into a lot of these boards as a society, you know, here's a chart and we're compliant with NIST, whatever, 800, whatever. And everyone's going to be like, cool, awesome. This looks great, right? I guess that's good, whatever that means. So yeah, no, I, I like that idea. And hopefully they're, I, I guess the challenge though, and I see this in hiring is the supply demand curve on hiring experienced security talent is really challenging. There's so much demand out there that you see young kids coming out of, you know, fresh out of a CISSP exam or, or fresh out of a master's or even a, you know, a shorter program in, in, in security with, with very little practice or experience landing jobs at very impressive pay rates. <laughs> yes. And, you know, we work with a lot of customers and that's a fact. And one of the things we do, we actually have a lot of customers that have security managers or directors we actually become like a resonance board for them or a, for them to get feedback and lean on some of our experience and get assistance. But these folks are being thrown a very big responsibility and they're very early. It'd be like, you know, some guy that just comes out of a six week training program in sales and then you're giving them the VP of sales role, but you're not calling it a VP, you're calling it a manager of sales. And so would you expect your sales program to be the best in your industry if you took that approach? Well, no, you wouldn't. But, but I think it speaks to where it's being prioritized in some companies. Right. Darren, thank you very much. Thank you for joining. Thank you. Great chatting.
everybody that's listening, thank you very much for joining us as well and listening to this amazing episode. And we will talk to you soon. And let's wait for the next episode. Thank you very much.